Okay, this is episode 16 of The Janet Lewis Show. In the podcast, I'll be talking with people who have tapped into what they love and are living the life they imagined. Or maybe they didn't imagine it, but have become super successful at what they're doing. They've been able to figure out what gives them energy or makes them happy and turn it into a business, or they found a career that allows them to shine. We're going to talk about their life story, how they got to where they are, and what has influenced their journey. Today, we're talking with Christine Kelly, founder and CEO of Little Kickers, which is an educational soccer or football program uh, designed to provide young children with a fun and positive introduction to sport, while also promoting the development of learning things like color and number recognition, as well as life skills like sharing and taking turns. Uh, Christine started this program in 2002 in the UK, and since then, Little Kickers has expanded to over 330 franchisees across 30 plus countries, and classes are attended by over 65,000 children each week. Wow, that's a lot of children. (laughs) Um, Christine is a forward-thinking entrepreneur that is solutions-oriented and doesn't take no for an answer. She has been able to bring her business to countries where there was some initial resistance. And Little Kickers has actually won many awards um, for Franchisor of the Year and top global franchisees. Uh, But this year, it was recognized as the Global Franchise Champion 2020 uh, by Global Franchise Magazine and has been ranked amongst Canada's fastest growing businesses by Profit Magazine. So this little business that Christine created out of a solution for her son has become a massive undertaking and literally is taking over the world. I love that she has incorporated two of my favorite things, sports and learning. And I'm totally looking forward to hearing all about Christine's journey. So Christine, thank you for joining me today. That's a pleasure. Nice to see you, Janet. It's always great to see you. I always love our conversations. And um, so I was thinking back to this and I was like, oh, when did we initially meet? And really, uh, you, you probably don't even know this, but I initially became aware of you because I saw you speaking at an event in Toronto through the Toronto Board of Trade. It was like a breakfast seminar, probably about three years ago. Yeah, I remember. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I was with my friend, Hermie, who's also an entrepreneur. And um, when I saw you speak, I thought, wow, this woman is a powerhouse and she has no fear. Um, And you were super passionate about what you were doing, which I love. And, you know, it's funny because I I didn't talk to you at that event, but then shortly after that, we were at another event and someone else introduced us to each other. And I was like, yes, I met Christine. This is amazing. And, you know, one of the things that I loved about you is that, you know, you're always very open and honest with your opinions, but you're also willing to listen to others and you don't shy away about sharing your own thoughts. And I loved hearing just a little bit about your journey. And so I thought this would be great to hear even more about your journey and share it with everybody who's aspiring to do something similar. So um, I also know when I researched you that you've come across many obstacles, probably um, being a female entrepreneur, but also expanding the business globally was also a challenge. And so I'm wondering, like, perhaps we can just start off with a little bit about where you were born, where you grew up, what your childhood was like, and um, 
let's talk about like what you're passionate about as a young girl and then we'll get into your journey of little kickers and how that all started sure yeah sounds good um well i was born in hotel by the accent i'm not well not originally canadian although i am now um i was born in north wales um back in 1971 and um my mom and dad moved house quite a lot with my dad's job um i have two younger brothers one is a year younger than me and the other one's four years younger and the one who's a year younger is just good at absolutely everything and so uh, we were very competitive with each other growing up and he was constantly kind of snapping up my heels um but yeah I get on really well with both of them they're great great boys and I think growing up my parents didn't really treat us very differently like I wasn't treated differently because I was a girl really you know if they wanted us to try a new sport it was like right we're all gonna try it so uh, it was a very kind of egalitarian type of an upbringing um so mum and dad kept moving house um and so my dad at the time he worked for a big bank in the UK called Barclays Bank and they had a scholarship scheme where um, some of the kids of their managers could get scholarships so that they could um, go to boarding schools and their education wouldn't be interrupted by the kind of constant moving house. Oh wow. So uh, I was lucky enough to get one of those scholarships and um, I went off to boarding school when I was 11 in York. Um, and it was an all girls boarding school, so quite kind of a different experience from living at home with my brothers. Um, but I loved it actually, and one of the really great things about that school was that, again, women and men, well, there were no men left, so, so it wasn't, you weren't kind of pigeonholed based on your sex at all. It was just kind of, you know, here you are, we're all here together, get on with it, do what you're good at, find something you're good at, and do that. So, uh, so yeah, I really enjoyed that time in my life. And then Fast forward a couple of years, when I got to about 16, I decided I wanted to go to a school with boys. So um, I managed to get my scholarship. Charged. Sure, you're 16. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> so I managed to get my scholarship transferred to a pretty much all boys boarding school. There were like hardly any girls, loads of boys. And um, I managed to do this by telling my parents I really wanted to be prime minister. And um, so they didn't do politics A-level at the school I was at. So they said, oh, okay, well, why don't you go to the boys' school? So I was like, yay, result. So I ended up there for two years, which was great fun. Um, and that was really interesting, actually, because um, there were so many boys there, not many, I think it was like 90 boys in my year and 20 girls. And um, it, the boys weren't used to having girls at the school. We were like the first year that girls were introduced all the way through the school. So they were really, really sexist to begin with. And um, and I think me and my friends were just like, what is wrong with these boys? <laughs> so, <laughs> no nonsense from them. We were just, <laughs> didn't really take them all that seriously. And, and again, you kind of, I didn't really see that there was a big difference between what, what men and women are capable of achieving at that point in time. So, uh, so yeah, that was kind of in a nutshell it. I, I kind of grew up in England and, and, uh, and went to school in York until I was about 18. And so when you were young, um, like you mentioned, if you were trying sports, your parents kind of got you all to try it. What were kind of some of the first introductions that you had to sport? Um, oh, I mean, loads of organized sports at school, because in England, you don't really, I mean, it might have changed nowadays, but in those days, you didn't really specialize in one particular sport, which seems to be the kind of, the way things are moving in Canada, which I don't, I don't think is a great thing to be honest. But, but in yeah. England, 
um, you kind of did multiple sports and, you know, kind of different sports, I guess, from over here, there was no, there was no ice hockey or anything like that. It was much more kind of tennis or swimming or, or field hockey, um, those types of sports. But yeah, mum and dad always just encouraged me to try anything. Um, unfortunately, they didn't do soccer football when I was growing up. Women just didn't, didn't play. It was more of a boys sport. So I missed out on that because I'd have loved to have given that a go when I was younger. <laughs> well, yeah, and and so it's even more interesting that this is kind of the business that you've created, right? Because it's not yeah. from an early childhood. So you finished boarding school. After you finished boarding school, what did you do? Um, went straight off to university, um, and after kind of having spent the summer working and saving up money and stuff, um, I went to study international business and modern languages. I did a four-year course at Aston University in Birmingham, and my third year I spent in Marseille for the year. So I studied there for about nine months um, on the south coast of France. Yeah. And then I got a, um, we had to do a work placement. So I managed to get the best work placement ever. I was working for um, Schweppes. And I was a sales rep and my, my territory was the Côte d'Azur. So between Marseille and Saint-Tropez. So I'd go out every day in my little suit with my briefcase with my Schweppes samples to all the little kiosks on the beach and try and persuade them to buy Schweppes products. Um, it, no, it's fantastic. Really good fun. And so um, was the Schweppes uh, internship, was that your first kind of like working experience or did you have any working experience before then? Oh, I'd had jobs since I was about 13. So I Oh, wow. Okay. What types of jobs? Yeah, yeah. No, I, I've got loads of different things. I did um, chamber maiding, so like, you know, cleaning hotel rooms and stuff. Yeah. Um, I worked in a gift shop. I worked in a sweet factory, like making candy and stuff. Um, I worked as a waitress. I worked as a barmaid. I worked as a kitchen porter. Um, yeah, loads and loads of different jobs. So every holiday from when I was about 13, I would, I would have a job. And so from all of the different um, job experiences, let's say from when you were like, uh, before you graduated university, out of all of those, is there one that is like more memorable or stands out the most to you? Like either because it was the most fun or you learned the most from it or you had something like really interesting happen? Probably the first one, not counting the Schweppes one, because that was my favourite, because that was just such good fun. But, um, but yeah, probably my first ever job was quite, um, it had quite a big impact on me, because I was only 13, and I was, we were living in a little place in the middle of nowhere, um, on the Scottish, in the Scottish borders, I was living there with my parents. And um, I went to work in a gift shop, and um, quite often the owner of the gift shop would just not bother showing up for work during the day and just leave me to run the gift shop and I was only 13 but uh, but I was I was quite happy with that and it made me think afterwards actually you know that, that was actually a pretty big deal when you're 13 to be running a gift shop and managing the till and cleaning all the stock and doing all that kind of stuff so I think that that made me realize that actually you know you're kind of capable of a lot more than you necessarily would expect you are <laughs> yeah and it also like I think it also sets you up for some success later yeah. You know, like you've done these things when you're younger and independent too. Yeah. Like no, independent. Yeah. And I think the opportunity to work abroad was another massive one because my French actually was not very good at all. When I got the Schweppes job, I, I got one of my friend's dads to help me prepare all of the, you know, lettre de motivation, all the paperwork and everything else. And I went to the interview and the guy said, oh, did you actually write 
this this letter yourself because the French is very good and I, and I said actually I really wanted the job so I got my friend's dad to help me and he was like okay that's quite enterprising at least and they gave me the job but I was so scared that I didn't sleep for about three nights before I started because I was having to go and do presentations to some quite big supermarkets in French to try and sell products that I didn't know any of the vocabulary or anything it was really frightening to begin with but after a couple of months it was fine <laughs> <laughs> you're like I've got this down I've got this down <laughs> that's amazing so then after the Schweppes opportunity did you have other um, internships that you also had to do or did you graduate and move into a like a career job or what happened then yeah so I graduated um, I had one more year at university back in the UK after that and then I graduated and at the time it was 1993 and it was a pretty awful job market in the UK um, and my dad persuaded me it would be a good idea to be an accountant. And when I told my friends at uni that's what I was going to do, no one could believe it. They were like, you're the last person who should be an accountant. I'm really not that numbers orientated. And uh, yeah, I, and so anyway, I kind of, I got a job with Pricewaterhouse at the time it was called, now it's Pricewaterhouse Coopers, um, down in London and, um, and went and started work there. But honestly, I was absolutely terrible <laughs> with accountants. You didn't you didn't like it or you found it difficult? I hated it and I found it really boring because I went into audit and so you literally they put you on all the, the rubbish jobs. So I was I'd be dumped in like a basement in the middle of nowhere with thousands of invoices and told you have to find these three particular invoices. So I'd spend days like <laughs> in the dark <laughs> following around trying to find invoices and stuff it was just I don't know I think for some people I know you have to do all of that to get started and then it maybe gets interesting afterwards I think for some people it's something that they love but it's just not at all my, my skill set yeah of. no that would be like the least appealing to me ever like, <laughs> I can't picture you doing that yeah I don't like I don't even like doing the taxes and the bookkeeping part of like running a business so that's yeah wow so you've discovered that you weren't enjoying it what did you do um well after about I think I stuck it out for about 18 months um and I was just literally at the point where every Sunday night I'd be crying which sounds really pathetic because I was an adult but I was just, <laughs> oh god I can't bear the thought of having to go back into work again tomorrow so um so I got to the point where I just thought right enough's enough I'm going to do something different and so um I interviewed with JP Morgan, um, the investment bank, and managed to get a job with them. And I absolutely loved that job. It was great. And that was obviously in finance as well. But yeah. it was worlds of difference from kind of what I've been doing at Pricewaterhouse. I really, really enjoyed JP Morgan. And so what, what type of job were you doing? Like, uh, was it that the tasks changed or were you dealing with more people? Like, what was it that made you like it more? I think it was a really steep learning curve. Um, because I was doing um, derivatives risk management and working collateralization. So it was actually quite mathsy, but I kind of got it and it kind of made sense to me. Um, and I got kind of moved gradually more towards a marketing type role. So doing lots of presentations, trying to come up with new products and structuring new kinds of, of ways of doing particular transactions. 
And so I would travel a lot to different countries, um, explaining to clients, you know, how we could help them with specific issues that they had and how we collateralized deals that they wanted to do with the bank and things like that. And I loved the traveling and I loved meeting all the clients and, and really enjoyed the, the steep learning curve. And, the, and it sounds weird, but it was actually quite a creative kind of a job in terms of, you know, having ideas and solving problems and things like that. No, I just loved it. And great people I worked with. They were just lovely. Yeah, because even when you're describing, I was like, oh, that's where the creativity comes in. So uh, did you, um, like at some point in time, it could have been even later, like when did you discover this skill or this love for creativity? I'd always had a bit of a kind of spark around setting up businesses. So I was constantly, when I was little, you know, setting up you know, flower stalls with friends and things like that. I always had a bit of an eye for that kind of thing. Um, and so I think even when I was at JP Morgan, actually, I set up a business, um, a cleaning company with a friend. It was meant to be more like a kind of concierge service because that kind of thing didn't exist in London at the time. But I recognized that there was a need for a lot of people I worked with who were working, you know, 12, 15 hour days. Um, to have somebody who could, um, you know, take their dry cleaning out or if they were having like, you know, fridge delivered to sit at home and wait for the delivery because you know we didn't get loads and loads of holiday and people didn't want to spend their time sitting at home and doing that so, so there's that kind of thing but combined with the cleaning business so I set that up and it actually um some of my friends at JP Morgan obviously found out about it because I didn't keep it a secret but it turned out you weren't allowed to have another job while you're <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so I ended up just giving the business to my business partner at the time and she ran it successfully in London for about 20 years and moved to Australia but um but yeah no it was it was a successful business wow okay so you had um the cleaning business that you set up and then you also mentioned a flower business when you were younger <clears throat> were there any other businesses in between there there was um so when I was setting up little kickers um I also had an idea at the time because my Obviously, I had a, had a newborn child and I was looking for nice pajamas for my son and I couldn't find any anywhere. And my ex-husband's father lived in Indonesia and there's lots of pajama manufacturing places over there. So I decided that I would create my own range of pajamas. So, <laughs> the kids. so and I was hoping to expand it into more products. But uh, I ended up getting about, God, it was a couple of thousand pairs of pajamas delivered. And um, I decided in the end, because Little Kickers I set up at a similar time. So I was like, whichever business takes off, I'll just do that. But um, the pajamas, they like followed me around for years. Like whenever I moved house, I'd have to move these like 2,000 pairs of pajamas with me. And they ended up in my grandma's garage. And unfortunately when she passed away, my mum was like, we've got to do, we can't just, mum, they're like 10 years old now. <laughs> 10 year old pajamas so at that point we, we ended up getting rid of them but uh but yeah the, the pajamas followed me around for a long time but that was that was another business I decided to set up but that one didn't work out that's so funny so um yeah when you do products if they don't sell they do tend to stick with you and follow you and I've talked to um authors who have the same thing with books right like oh I had all these books produced and they're all in my garage and like I couldn't even give them away <laughs> Sometimes that's a hard lesson to learn. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So um, you came up with the idea of little kickers. You're still um, at JP Morgan. Yes. Or you were there. Um, and you I'd actually, yeah, I'd actually kind of moved. So I had my son, um, Lucas, and decided that I was working really, really long hours at JP Morgan. 
Um, and so I decided that I'd quite like to change careers to somewhere where <clears throat> I would be able to go part-time. So I did that and I actually ended up um, at Enron. Um, yeah, I, I ended up as a risk manager there four months before I went bankrupt. <laughs> Are you serious? So, uh, so yeah, so I was there when, uh, when I, well, when it went under, um, unfortunately. And, um, and at that point I was like, seriously, who's going to hire an ex risk manager from Enron? Maybe I'll take a little bit of a career break and spend some time with Lucas. Cause I kind of miss seeing him grow up and stuff a lot at that point. He was kind of two years old. So yeah. So yeah, the Enron years. <laughs> oh my goodness. Okay. So then you're at home with Lucas. Yeah. And how did, how did that whole idea of little kickers even start? Like, yeah, so I hadn't, for the first two years he was alive, I didn't spend much time with him at all because I was working really, really long hours. And um, yeah, it was kind of quite a stressful time. And so when Enron went under, I thought, actually, I'm just going to take a bit of time off and just spend some time with Lucas. So um, he and I ended up going to the park every day and he just loved to play football, soccer. And so I'd have standing goal every day and he'd be kicking balls past me and and as I said kind of women of my generation we, it, football wasn't a thing that we learned when we were at school so um so I didn't really know what I was doing um and so I decided that having chatted to a few of my other friends that they they had kids too who were really interested in playing football but there were no classes for any kind of sport really for young kids um as I said at the time Lucas was two so I decided that I'd do a little pilot at the nursery school that he attended and um, just see whether there was actually proper interest um, in, you know, proper classes being set up that people would actually pay for. So I ran a pilot in his nursery school. And I deliberately asked all of my friends not to send their kids because I didn't want them to do it just because they felt sorry. For <laughs> it was commercially viable. Um, she, and got, she, she was at Enron. Send your kids. <laughs> Oh, no, exactly. So, um, so yeah, I was really pleased though that the pilot that people paid for got oversubscribed by about 400%. So I was wow. like, definitely demand for this. So um, I thought, well, why don't I just expand this as quickly as I can across different areas of London um, and just, you know, see how big it can get. So um, I, I had a look at the map of the different kind of areas of London, decided which ones I thought were probably a kind of similar demographic to the area I lived in, which was kind of, you know, lots and lots of kids. And just set up um, about 35 classes in the first year that I was operating. And, um, and it kind of got to the point then where I was, you know, <laughs> back to square one a little bit. I was really struggling to see anything of Lucas because I was working so hard running a business. <laughs> set up for him so that uh, kind of started to backfire a little bit at that point so how did um when you set up the 35 classes like were you teaching the classes or you had hired other people to teach the classes so I managed to find um, in a kid's play park when I was out with Lucas one day, there was a guy who was wearing like a football kind of kit and playing football with his son who looked a similar age to Lucas. And, um, and he seemed to know what he was doing and seemed to kind of understand what kids of the age of kind of two or three were capable of doing as well. So he had a kind of bit of an understanding of 
football coaching plus early early years development. So I just got chatting to him and said, you know, do you fancy being the lead coach and I'll be your assistant coach? Um, and yeah, we just we kind of set up the classes like that. So as the assistant coach for the first couple of weeks, I wasn't kind of a naturally gifted assistant coach because I was not good at football because I didn't really know what I was doing. But um, so as soon as I could afford to, I hired someone in who actually knew what they were doing. Well, and also, like, did you really enjoy being the assistant? I didn't mind it, but I felt a bit useless because I didn't, mm. you know, just, I, I, it's not something I was naturally really very good at because I had yeah. no experience with it, yeah. And so um, when did you get to the point that it became a franchise model? Because it sounds like originally it wasn't a franchise model, right? Yeah. No, so originally it wasn't, and I think, um, it's kind of, you know, with any franchise business, you have to have set up the pilot and or a business and run it and, and made it profitable before you can start franchising it. Because if, if you can't set it up and run it profitably yourself, there's no way you can be able to teach someone else to do it. Yeah. So, so yeah, by the end of that first year, I'd got the 35 classes a week up and running and I knew that it was commercially viable, it was making a profit and everything else. So at that point, I decided that probably it would make sense to start franchising it. Um, it's actually somebody approached me, a lady from Northwest London, um, who wanted me to set up classes in her area. And I just said, look, I'm at capacity. I can't set up anymore. And she said, well, how about I buy a franchise? So I kind of quickly ran off, did a bit of Googling to try and find out about <laughs> franchising. Um, and I was very upfront with them. I just said, look, you know, I, I don't know much about franchising, but I'm more than happy to help you set up the business. And, um, you know, you tell me what you need. And she was a fantastic first franchisee. She was, um, she was an ex-banker as well, actually. But um, she'd had a really good career before she had kids. She wanted to have her own business, very ambitious, very driven, wanted the work-life balance and was quite demanding, saying, you know, I need this, I need this, I need you to prepare this for me. So um, she really helped to kind of, you know, to build the whole franchise infrastructure and the original kind of model that we operated from um, so and she's actually still with us today she's been with oh us wow 2004 I think she joined us but yeah she's still um, a franchisee up in northwest London she's doing a brilliant job that's amazing and so um, obviously the first franchise was still in the UK and then how many franchises did you have in the UK before you looked to go out of the country so we're really lucky insofar as um, I'm, for the first couple of years, we didn't advertise for franchisees at all. Everyone just approached us. And so um, it was, you know, either friends of friends or existing franchisees, their friends, coaches, just you know, a whole range of different people. And so um, the year after that, so it would have been 2005, we sold 25 franchises that year in the UK. Wow. Without advertising. And so at that point, I was, I'd started to think about maybe going overseas and we'd started to get quite a few inquiries in from people who wanted us to kind of help them set it up overseas. But I chatted to a few other franchisors who were in a kind of similar-ish kind of space, like as in kind of children's services. And they all said, do not do it. Don't go overseas. It's an absolute nightmare. You know, one of them, their finance director had had to move to Australia for six months to deal with lawsuit that was going on. And they just said, just keep focusing on the UK. Don't expand out side of the UK 
Um, but it got to 2006 and um, I was contacted by a guy from South Africa, Carlo, who's, who's still with us as well now, but um, he wanted us to take him on as a master franchisee for South Africa. So in a nutshell, like he would set up and run a pilot um, and then he would sell unit franchises out within the rest of South Africa and he would train up the franchisees in the different areas and manage the network of franchisees in that country. Um, and I really liked him and, and thought he would probably do a really good job. He had good business experience. And so I decided that, you know, he would be our first master and we'd, we'd give going overseas a tentative go and see how it went. And yeah, as I said, he's still with us today and, and doing a great job in South Africa. He's got about 25 franchisees over there now. Wow. So um, you mentioned uh, one of my favorite words that a lot of entrepreneurs use, and it was the word lucky. Oh, we just got lucky. <laughs> it's like, do you really think you got lucky? Or is part of it that you're just open to opportunities and you see them when they come along? I think I'm very open to opportunities. Yeah. Uh, and I think to a degree, it sounds a little cliche, but I think you kind of make your own luck, don't you? So if you're yeah. somebody who even if something turns out and you know or works out in not a fantastic way not exactly as you'd wanted it but actually if you can kind of think outside the box a little bit and think actually maybe i could twist that on its head and do this with it i think if you can think in a slightly different way then um then you know you feel possibly lucky but i think at the same time it's just pushing away at the same idea i suppose yeah and then um with it's carlos from Okay. When, like, how did he learn about you or find about, out about you? Like, did he meet you somewhere? How did that um, relationship start? I think he found our classes online, actually. Um, and that was the case with quite a few of our international franchisees. They either found us online or when we, we were quite lucky because when we started in London, um, obviously there's a lot of people who travel overseas with work and live overseas. So we had so many of our franchisees who basically their kids had come to classes in London and then they moved off to Sydney and wanted to set up a franchise there or Jakarta or Johannesburg, whatever. So we had a lot of master franchisees who all kind of are connected in some way and all kind of know each other. But it's because of that, you know, the, the, the fact that people now are quite transient and, and companies will move people quite easily between different capital cities around the world. Wow. So after um, South Africa, what was the next country that you... Um, oh, it was Australia and New Zealand at about the same time. Um, we got two masters in Australia, one for Queensland, one for New South Wales, and then a master franchisee in New Zealand. And those were kind of a bit tougher because um, the time difference with the UK is a bit of a nightmare. So it was at that point that I kind of decided that in order for me to take someone on as a franchisee, I was doing all the support. So I was having to speak to them at, you know, 10 o'clock at night and things like that, once I put the kids to bed. Um, but in order for me to be happy to take someone on, I had to actually really like them as a friend. It wasn't just that I had to know they would be good at doing the job and good at being a master franchisee, but I needed to actually want to spend time in the evening chatting to them. And so luckily, you know, the, the first three or four franchise, they're absolutely fantastic. And it, it's actually, you know, some of them are still with us now. I think that 
a New South Wales master. He's taken on Queensland now, but but he's still with it. And I always just look forward to chatting to him. We end up kind of, you know, two hour conversations and stuff, but just a lovely, lovely guy. And I think a lot of the masters, they're just great, great people. It was a pretty good criteria for choosing them, you know, not just that I knew they could could do the job that they needed to do, but actually that they were really good people, especially if you're kind of working with somebody who's so far away. And we spend a lot of time trying to build up those relationships with the masters because you want their first phone call if they run into trouble to be to you so that you can help them rather than to a lawyer, you know, particularly if they're sitting on the other side of the world. So, um, so yeah. Yeah. But it sounds like, it sounds like you've had a lot of people um, who've been with you for a long time. And, you know, I think a lot of that also speaks to good leadership too, right? So there must be things that you're doing that um, really appeal to them or speak to them or make them want to stay with you as long as they have. Well, thank you. Um, I think the main thing that I've kind of learned I guess as I've gone along the way it's, it's it's very different from working in a corporate environment where you know I was, I was very used to just doing what I was told and getting on with my job um, whereas I think with Little Kickers what I what I recognize now is we have so many franchisees from so many different backgrounds and you know they've got a wealth of experience and if we can harness all of their insights and experience and recommendations and, you know, to be fair, I'm not out there every day selling classes to customers and running classes. The franchisees are. So if we maintain that relationship from our head office with each of the franchisees and have their feedback, find out what competitors are doing, find out what they think our next move should be, then I think it makes the business that much more successful. And it kind of gives everybody ownership of the decisions that we take and the strategy that, that we're the kind of direction we're moving the business in. Um, and if you've got people who kind of buy into that because they know that you haven't just made it up from nowhere, you actually yeah. discussed it with everybody, then I think people are a lot more motivated and a lot happier to actually keep keep moving in the same direction with the business. So I think the main benefit we've had as a company is this incredible network of franchisees that we can just leverage all of their skills, their experience on an ongoing basis to make sure that, you know, we're kind of staying ahead of the game on everything that we do. Yeah, no, that's amazing. And it's also like allowing them to feel like they're adding value, you know, and they're being heard, which I think yeah. is super, super critical, especially nowadays. Yeah, absolutely. And they, and they completely add value. I mean, so many of the new initiatives and the new direction that we've taken the business in, um, you know, things like organizing kids' birthday parties, moving into doing holiday programs, different age groups, um, badge schemes for loyalty, that they've all come from franchisees. So it's just kind of, you know, for us, we're lucky. We're long, as long as we have our ear to the ground and listen to what they're suggesting, we can pick through the pieces and say, right, actually, which of these ideas would work for everybody and if the, be of the kind of most benefit to the business? And, uh, and you're right, once people know that you're listening to their feedback and that you're going to kind of take some of their ideas forward, they're a lot more brought into it. Yeah. Yeah. And so when you're looking like you're in um, 30 plus countries, there has to be some differences across the globe as to like what works in one region versus definitely won't work in another region. And so with your strategy, do you try to find something that will work across all or work across majority like what does that look like or is there are there things that come up that you're like this will definitely not work here so we can never implement it anywhere like yeah. how do you work through those 
That's a really good question. So I think um, the overall mission of the business originally, and, and still is, to, to get as many kids as we can involved in sport. So bearing that in mind, um, there shouldn't be a country where we can't operate. We should be able to operate everywhere. But obviously, we can't reinvent the wheel every time we go into a, a new country. So um, what we try and do is use as much of our existing infrastructure as we can in a particular country. But every now and again, we do have to make little tweaks. Um, so, you know, as an example, um, it seems to be that, that depending on how developed the country is in terms of being, the concept of kids' activity classes being recognised, that will dictate how much we have to change what we do. So if you look at kind of, you know, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, they were the first countries we franchised into, South Africa, um, mainly because the markets are pretty developed there. You know, setting up a preschool football business in those countries, parents will probably want to send their kids because they know it's a concept that's familiar. Whereas trying to expand into somewhere like India, or China, um, when we when we first set up there, was quite different. And in a lot of the markets we've gone into, we've been the first company of our kind to go into those markets. And it's been difficult and a real uphill challenge. And in some of them, they have kind of weird rules around franchising where, you know, you're not allowed to sell a franchise until you've been operating for five years and things like that. But we've taken the decision that actually, if our commitment is to get as many kids as we can involved in sport, we've got to set up, we've got to wait the five years then sell franchises um wow so, yeah so it's it's a very kind of long term long game kind of business um with with a lot of the different countries where we operate but you're right i mean the specific differences in lots of different countries for example brazil when we launched there it was actually two brazilian um, a brazilian couple who'd worked running a franchise for us in australia they moved back to brazil wanted to set up little kickers there and the problem we found was that you know brazilian parents if you suggest that an english slash canadian business should teach their kids football they just were laughing at us because they were so much better than you and there was <laughs> So, um, so what we decided in that market was to actually develop an English language program so that kids who came to our classes could learn English while they develop their football skills. And that's gone down a storm. We're now in about 44 different cities in Brazil. And that's all because, you know, that the franchisees who launched there thought outside the box and thought, well, it's not going to work in its current form. How do we tweak it? And so, yeah, you're completely right. You do have to change things slightly to get them to work in the different markets. But with franchising, you don't want to change them too much because it's impossible to support. Yeah, no, for sure. So I love that um, the kids are learning soccer or football, but also learning English. So when you're in a model like that, like I used to teach English in South Korea for two and a half years. Yeah, and so it was like straight when I was at a university. Yeah. Well, in that model, like when I got hired by this small little school, the rule was I could not speak any Korean in class. I could only speak English. And so is that the same thing with the little kickers? Like when the kids come, it's English only. It's really hard because the kids are so young. So we start that at about two and a half. Um, so what we did, because we didn't know if it would work to begin with. So we decided to do a pilot in the beaches in Toronto just to, to see you know, if kids could learn languages through football. Um, and it was actually, my, I had to be the assistant coach again and obviously speak French from my, from my years at university. So we had the lead coach speaking English and I would only speak French. 
Um, because following kind of similar to what you were saying, the kids get confused if one person speaks both languages. Yeah. So we had the lead coach speaking English, me speaking French. And what we discovered um, in the pilot, it was fascinating that, that we'd sit the kids down at the beginning and we'd try and explain to them the words that they were going to be learning. The, the little girls would sit there and they'd just be like, oh yeah, you, know, you can see them kind of really trying to remember the words and paying attention. The boys were just messing around and flicking each other and, and really not focusing but when it came down to the games and all of our program is kind of it's um it's all based around you know kids using their imagination and playing games and having fun while they're learning um so when it came to playing the games and adding in a little bit of competitivity um and and you know still introducing the language but we we do things like we'd have exercises where in order to score a goal we'd have like a red blue and a yellow space marker and i would shout a color in french and the child would have to kick the right the ball off the right colored space marker and things like that and they'd only get a point if they did and suddenly the boys were really really engaged and so at that point we thought actually we might be onto something this might be a way of, of teaching kids languages and i think the the model as it's evolved in brazil is very much like that they'll have one coach who speaks only Portuguese and one coach who speaks English and uh, and that seems to work really really well we, we kind of de deliberately developed it all around Cambridge University's early learning curriculum and they have a set of words that kids should have acquired by the time they're seven in English um, and you know the kids who come to our classes will definitely have got to that point by the time they leave so it's, it's pretty uh, it works really well yeah, that's what I like. That's what I like about Little Kickers is that it really looks at like developmental research around whatever it is that you're trying to teach the kids, right? And so it's not just, you know, there are lots of businesses out there that will say, oh, we do A, B, C, and D, but they're kind of doing it by the seat of their pants and they don't ever link back into the research and like, does this really make sense to be doing it this way? And that's one of the things that I loved when I was reading about Little Kickers, like how um, how much it is tied into research and development and the latest stuff that's out there. Yeah. And so how do you stay on top of all of that component? We have a really good team, actually. Um, and I feel very lucky that, that our, our franchise or team, we've got a lot of um, people who've studied sports science kinesiology from different countries around the world the bulk of them have worked for coaches as coaches for a number of years and potentially also franchisees before they join the head office team so they know the business inside out and and i think the thing that they all share is they're fascinated by how kids of this kind of age acquire skills and how they develop and so they've all got a natural interest in that anyway but we do partner up quite closely with some universities as well so u of t we were doing quite a bit of work with their um, early childhood development um, and we've had some of their students as placement students we've actually given a franchise to my old university in england um, and the idea behind that is to get you know placement students every year will kind of switch out and get two new students in who will set up and or help help run the franchise in Birmingham. Um, but yeah, we, so we do quite a bit with universities to make sure that we're getting new input and, and new knowledge into the business. Yeah, no, that's super interesting. And so um, with the little kickers, um, from when you started until now, what do you think has been your biggest challenge to date? Um, I think probably, the biggest challenge was in the first few years, and I think probably anyone who's set up a business would say the same thing. It's 
when you don't know if it's definitely going to work and you know you know that you could be employed by somebody and earning a decent salary and there's no risk but instead you're a complete idiot and you say no I'm not going to do that I mean, <laughs> illogical and irrational and because when I told my friends from from the JP Morgan that I was going to be setting up a kids football coaching they could not believe it they were like what are you talking about why would you do that and now it kind of makes sense but but I think the hardest thing is when you it's not a proven thing you don't know if it's definitely going to work it's really really difficult to keep slogging away at something yeah trying to make it work and I think I mean would you say that from your experience that's similar as well oh for sure for sure like you think for sure you think about like I could have kept my career at this big organization and financially been so much further ahead and uh, I'm just here working more hours than I thought I would um yeah so I think when you get into that part of the journey you don't really realize what you're getting into you know yeah. like you no, think I completely you're going to be passionate about what you're doing. You're going to love it. Um, you think it's going to be like a different lifestyle, but in essence, because it's your own, you end up working more hours than you would for an organization anyways, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I think that, and then the, the other thing that surprised me quite a bit was there's, there's not everybody wants you to succeed. And that's a yeah. bit of a correlation in and of itself. Yeah. Uh, we had a lot of people who popped up in competition with us and I've had death threats and things like that, which is completely crazy because it's like, you know, preschool kids football business. But, um, but yeah, there's, when you start to make a go of it and it starts to work, a lot of people are very hostile towards you. Even my God. Okay, but can we, can we go back to death threat? <laughs> like, what? I've had a few. Um, really? First one, when we first started out, it was actually someone who set up in competition a couple of months later and um, he rang up and I think he'd only just found out about it. So I don't think he, he didn't copy what we did. I think he didn't realize that we were already doing it. He thought it was his idea. And um, yeah, he left this really horrible message on my voicemail threatening me and um, saying, you know, I'm going to come and sort you out and everything. So I had to report him to the police. And then the most recent one I had was I went to Brazil for, um, we had our master franchisees at a conference there a year last January. And I got a death threat from someone in Brazil saying they were going to chop my ears off. <laughs> what? I know. So when I went there, I deliberately didn't post anything about going or anything on social media till I got back. And um, I went under a false name to the hotel. And yeah, and I think I was probably just being paranoid. But yeah, it was, it's not nice. You kind of think, wow, you know, but all I'm trying to do is get kids to do some sport. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's like when you started out this business, you didn't realize it would be like uh, risk taking behavior <laughs> for your life. Yeah. Wow, that's fascinating. So at what point in time did you really think, wow, I can't believe how far this has gone. This has really been super successful. I'm so happy I chose this. Do you know, it didn't really happen until February um, because you, I don't know, you kind of, I think when you run your own business, you kind of have tunnel vision into it a little bit and you don't really see much of what's going on in the outside world. <clears throat> I think the business 
when it was becoming really successful in the UK, I moved to Canada it was about 10 years ago, and then it was kind of like, oh, slogging away, building up the business in Canada. Um, <clears throat> so it was, it was only really in February, we, I got a phone call to say that we'd won Global Franchisor of the Year, which is the kind of grand prize for franchising, and I couldn't believe it. But we, um, I deliberately got the team together in Orlando. I didn't tell them that we'd won, and um, and got them all together in Orlando, and we went to the awards and got the award. And at that point, I was like, actually, you know, that's probably for our industry, probably about as good as it gets. So, so now I was really, really, really chuffed about that. Really happy. Yeah, no, that's amazing. I when I was reading that, I was like, I didn't, I like, I didn't know because I didn't see anything, and uh, I was like, wow, that's phenomenal. And even even being listed as like one of Canada's fastest growing businesses, businesses in Profit Magazine is also quite an achievement too. Oh, thank you. You know, yeah, we're doing more of the awards now. I think for a long time we'd kind of they take so long to enter and they can become so time consuming and it's quite an expense as well because you know you always have to go and do interviews and things like that so um my focus has always been more kind of right just focus on the business grow it grow it grow it um but yeah we're doing probably do more of them now and so uh what do you think is going to be next for you um there's i mean well at the moment we've got to kind of survive covid yeah uh yeah, yeah. But, but you guys have been doing some good stuff online. Like I've seen some of the online content that you're putting out for your audience, which I think is great. Thank you. Yeah, it's, it was, it's an interesting one because, you know, no one could have predicted this was going to happen. But as of the last probably month and a half, we haven't been running classes anywhere in the world. I think we, we were kind of reasonably lucky in a way because um, we used to only operate in six or 12 week blocks. So people would sign the kids up for six or 12 week courses. Um, and every six or 12 weeks, we you know, give them a ring and say, do you want to re-enroll for another six or 12 weeks? But we changed that about a year and a half ago to a subscription model where parents just give us the credit card details and we just take money every month until such a time that they decide that they don't want to come to classes anymore. Um, because we've moved to that model now, it meant that when COVID struck, we could just say to the parents, you know, do you want to just put your membership on hold we won't charge you anything um, and then we can just start you up again when the lockdown's over um, and so we managed to retain about I think it was 71,000 customers when we went into lockdown around the world and now we managed to retain I think about 68 and a half thousand which is great so they're all just waiting for us to kind of switch it back on but we took the decision that rather than trying to kind of you know pivot and turn everything into online and get people to pay for online content that wasn't really the direction we wanted to go in as a business because you know really we were pretty restricted in terms of the content that we could create because it ended up being me and my son in the, in the back garden we kind of created a little bit of a studio on the lawn and uh, i was filming him while he was doing kind of virtual classes online and it's you know if we'd had a proper recording studio and a crew and everything else we could have pivoted and gone into online content but what we didn't want to do was to be charging customers for content that wasn't really you know top top quality um but it was just the best we could do under the circumstances so uh, we did want to give them some content so the kids could keep doing it to keep the kids kind of busy and active but uh but we didn't want really to be charging them for that so um so we've been kind of more focusing on just trying to keep our existing customers happy um so that they'll want to continue with us once lockdown finishes 
Yeah, well, and part of like part of the key skills that you're teaching kids too is kind of how to interact with each other. So if you're doing online content and it's to one kid in their living room, like yes, they're having fun and they're being active and doing it, but they've kind of been missing out on those sharing or standing in line or some of those other real life skills that you're teaching them, right? Yeah, I completely agree. And I think well, I've had this debate with quite a few other um, franchisors who have kids' activity businesses. And really, I think there's a massive difference between sport and exercise. So yeah. exercise is what you can do at the moment at home, you know, in your back garden on your own or watching the TV, kind of working out. But I think sport is worlds apart. And the skills that you can learn from sport and the enjoyment you can get from sport is, you know, far and away above what you can get from exercise, in my opinion. And, and I think that's kind of what our ethos is around as, as a business, rather than actually just getting kids fit and healthy. We want them to develop all those other skills that you get from sport. Yeah, I think, you know, I did an interview with my um, university coach from McMaster, and we talked a lot about the difference between sport and working out or sport and exercise. And I just think like, I've always been involved in sport from a young age. And there's just so many things that it teaches you. And, and the biggest one is resilience, you know? Yeah. So when you are dealing with something like COVID, um, you know, for me, uh, my mentality around this is this is gonna pass. And, you know, it's just important to keep moving forward and to try to keep your day as much as you can, similar to what it was before, you know? And sport also teaches you discipline and how to self-motivate. Like there's just so many things that you get out of sport. So I always hope that there's gonna be great people out there that are promoting sport and giving opportunities for kids, especially at a young age, because I agree with you. Like, I think if they have a super positive experience when they're younger, you know, it might not be soccer they continue in, but they'll at least find something that they really enjoy, right? Maybe it is soccer. Um, but it's really super important to have that positive first experience. Yeah, no, I couldn't, I couldn't agree with you more. And I think it's been, it's been proven by statistics that if a child gets involved in sport and loves sport when they're young, they are way more likely to continue doing it throughout their kind of adult years or, or adolescent years and into adulthood. So I think really, you know, it's one of the most important things you can do for a child is to give them that experience when they're young and to get them to, to love exercise, sport and, and physicality. Really, really important. Yeah, like I always say one of the things that that my parents did when we were young, which I 100% appreciate is we had the opportunity to try so many different things, you know, like, of course, we were put in swimming right away. And then it's t-ball and baseball and then soccer. And so it's like having all of these different experiences gets you familiar with like feeling uncomfortable in your own body and trying new things. But it also sets you up for trying things that, that you might really want to try and you're not so leery to jump into it. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think there's very much kind of mentality around winning nowadays, which I think unless you've had experience of, of losing, you don't build that resilience, as you were saying. And my daughter, she's big into beach volleyball and uh, she's been playing for years now. But, but quite often when her team would lose, I'd actually, you know, not be delighted they lost, but, but we think actually she is learning now. She's, you don't learn as much by winning as you do by losing, I think. And you don't build the same kind of mental and strength and, and resilience. So, yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. I think it's really important. Yeah, and I think, you know, that's the biggest thing about sport. Like, it is about winning and losing. Um, 
And it's also translating into life where, you know what, maybe today I didn't win that business, but guess what? I can go out and try again tomorrow. Yeah. And it's not the end of the world. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think sport is, is you know, the, the, the sad thing I've seen in Canada, and in the UK, but a lot of teenage girls, they kind of get to the age of 13, 14, and they drop out of sport at that point. And I think that's the point, that's the time when it's so important for them to carry on. Because I think, you know, even, even more important than, than a boy necessarily building those skills, the sport builds the resilience and everything else. Women need that because the world, much as it would be lovely if it was all completely equal, it's not quite there yet. And so I think sport's incredibly valuable for women in terms of kind of for young women in terms of building that resilience. Yeah, and I think sport also teaches you about not just goal setting, but also about having dreams and trying to achieve dreams, you know, like for me, I come from like a super, super small town up north. And I wouldn't say I ever really thought about even going to university. Like I didn't even think it was a possibility until I was in grade 10. And I went to a tournament at a university. It was actually a tournament at McMaster. Oh, and, yeah. And I was like, oh, I love it here. I want to go here. <laughs> and so, you know, having the opportunity to have those experiences at that age also helped you have some goals later of seeing like what possibilities are and maybe where you do want to end up steering your life to go yeah no absolutely completely agree um okay so i'm totally aware of your time so i just want to ask you a couple of rapid fire questions and the question is quick but your answer can be as long as you would like it to be okay are you all set Yep, all set. <laughs> uh, okay, so what is one thing that your mom or dad always told you? Um, I know my mom was very much into treating other people as you'd like to be treated. And so, you know, if you, there were two things, there was that, treating other people as you'd like to be treated, so, you know, being kind, and, um, yeah, I'd say, I think that was probably the main one, and if you haven't got anything nice to say, don't say anything at all, that was, I think all mums say that, I say that to my kids. <laughs> it's true, though, it's true. <laughs> um, okay, so, in your life, have you ever quit or given up on something? Oh, lots of things. Yeah, I think because I, I love trying new things, so I couldn't possibly keep doing everything that I try. Um, but there's nothing, I don't think that I've quit or given up on that I really regret having quit or given up on. So most of the things that I've tried and that I've enjoyed, I've carried on doing. But I think unless I had the attitude that not every, I'm not going to love everything, then I wouldn't try as many things as I do. So yeah, so I, I definitely, I, I'm, when it comes to things that I try and I don't enjoy, I'm a quitter. I just won't do them. <laughs> <laughs> so is there anything, I've had this experience, is there anything that you've tried and you didn't enjoy it as much as you thought you would. And then you're like, oh, I really wish I enjoyed that because I'd like to be good at it. <laughs> Snowboarding. Oh. <laughs> that killed me. I really, really, really wanted to be good at snowboarding. I even bought like funny uh, ski pants with rubber padding around the bum. <laughs> and everything. And um, I just, I, I, I love skiing. So I was like, right, you know obvious next step and I am just absolutely useless and I was getting more and more injured as I tried <laughs> <laughs> I really wish I could because 
it looks kind of like this is not worth it. <laughs> and um, what is one thing that you cannot live without? My kids. Oh, of course, of course, yeah. <laughs> and they're good kids too. Oh, thank you. Um, when you're thinking, like, this will be the last question, but it's kind of like a message. So I steal this question from Tim Ferriss because I love it. Um, but if you could have a billboard anywhere and it could say anything, what would that billboard message be? That's an easy one. It would be, what's the worst that can happen? Oh. Because that's just my motto with everything. It's like, give it a go. What's the worst that can happen? And, and if you kind of work it out and the actual worst that can happen is not all that bad, why not give it a try? Yeah, I love that. I love that. Because there's so many things that hold people back. Yeah. And really, like when you're thinking about like what's holding someone back, it is their idea or their imagination of what could go wrong. But when you look at it, it's like, what are the chances of that really going wrong though? And even if it does, if it doesn't really matter that much, give it a try anyway. Yeah. <laughs> so I did that last year with uh, skydiving. Oh, did you? You did skydiving last year. Wow. <laughs> That's brave. And how was it? You lived to tell the tale. Um, it was, you know, it's funny because what I thought I would be like nervous about, I wasn't. But um, I, I thought that I would like love it. But, you know, I did love jumping out of the plane and I actually loved the free fall part. Like to were me, fastened on to, were you fastened on to somebody or you just, yeah, I was fastened on to someone. Yeah. I have a video of it. I have a video of it, but it was, it was fascinating like to fall. But the part I did not enjoy is, um, after they pulled the chute, we ended up like twirling like around and around and I don't even I didn't even think of that as being like part of the experience but I don't even do well on like rides that go in circles is it meant to do that or was that well it was a really super windy day and the wind had changed directions and some of the um instructors twirl you because they think it will be more fun and so when we got to the bottom, the guy was like, how are you feeling? And I was like, I'm going to be sick. <laughs> I loved it, but I'm going to be sick. <laughs> so I think if like, I, I'll go again. This is the thing though. I'll go again, but I will tell the instructor that I'm with, like, no twirling. <laughs> would, you, would you do it on your own or would you do, only do it with an instructor? Like, do you have to do a few jumps with an instructor before you can do it on your own? Yeah, I think you have to do like 20 jumps with an instructor before you can do it on your own. Yeah, yeah. So I don't know that I'll ever get to 20 jumps because there's so many other things I want to try. Yeah. Like I would love to try, you know how you can jump off the cliff with the parachute? Yes. Try that or hand gliding, I would love to try. The, the parapomp thing they call it, I think. I, I tried to do that with my son years ago, but I think the wind changed, and so they were worried that we could be flipped back against the cliff. But I would love to try that. Yeah. Parachuting, like, yeah, I think that I'd get scared that high up. I don't know. But. No, you know what? You've flown so much, you'd probably be fine. Yeah. Because it's really like you get to the door, and then they're like, okay, go. And you're like, okay. <laughs> I guess if you're, someone, you're on someone's back, you don't have much choice, do you, really? Yeah, and, and, you know, like, he knows what he's doing. I don't really have to know anything. 
Yeah, I did. I got scared on the edge walk at the CN Tower because I was—I don't like heights that much. I was expecting you just like hold on to the banister and walk around the middle, and they, you know, they make you dangle over the edge. And I didn't like that very much. <laughs> so I, I really admire you for being brave enough to do that. That's uh, that's quite. Well, it's been a last minute, and I'm like, sure, let's do it. But it goes to what you say. Like, what's the worst thing that? <laughs> well, that that gives I'm quite bad because I have an old fashion. <laughs> Oh uh, yeah. <laughs> but you know, as an entrepreneur, we're all high risk takers anyways, right? This is true. <laughs> um, so Christine, thank you so much for joining me today. Um, I loved our conversation. I loved hearing your story and always your insights are uh, so great and so valuable. So thank you so much. Thank you so much. It's always lovely to chat to you. I know we'll have to like when this COVID stuff is over, we'll have some wine. We'll get together for some wine. Um, but if people wanted to follow you online um, or get in touch with you, where's the best place to find you? Um, I'm on LinkedIn, Christine Kelly, Little Kickers. Okay. Um, or my email is christine at littlekickers.co.uk. So it's .co.uk on the end rather than dots. And then uh, Little Kickers, I'm guessing, has uh, Facebook, Instagram. Yeah. Okay, great. So people, I'll put those in the show notes so people okay. can uh, go there for more information about Little Kickers. And uh, thank you again. Well, thank you, Janet. It was great to see you. Great to see you too. Bye.